When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here today with my friend, uh, uh, Michael Alexander, the president of LaSalle University. Michael, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me here, David. Would, would you mind starting just sharing a little uh, with folks about your, your own background growing up, where you grew up, where you went to school? Uh, well, as a I, I, this could go on a little ways, but uh, yes. you know, I, I, I was, uh, I grew up in the Columbus, Ohio area, but I was actually born in Springfield, Ohio, and I uh, spent the first year of my life in the president's house at Antioch College, huh. which is kind of an interesting little fact considering where I ended up and that I live in a president's house now. Um, and my father, my grandfather was uh, vice president, dean of the faculty for 30 some years at Antioch, twice interim president, and I was close to him since the time I was a little kid. I can remember him, you know, in the 50s when I was just a child telling me, Small colleges need other sources of revenue besides tuition. <laughs> so those of us who think that's a new phenomenon, you know, I'm sorry. It comes up about every 20 years. Uh, grew up in the Columbus, Ohio area. My father uh, was a zookeeper who who did, couldn't make enough money when he had four children, so became a stockbroker. Uh, my mother was a school guy, guy school psychologist, in fact, became the most well-known school psychologist in the country because she founded and was the first president of the National Association of School Psychologists when they broke away from the um, uh, American Psychological Association. And um, so um, I uh, ended up going to a private boys' school in Columbus, um, played, you know, athletes of all three seasons and uh and and uh was lucky enough to go on to harvard uh, for an undergraduate where i studied the history and literature of america sometime in that time while i was at harvard i know perhaps before because of my grandfather i knew i wanted to be a small college president and so i went to graduate school um and studied higher education trying to take the direct path you know uh, and so my master's work and doctoral work both in higher education and i worked in higher education for nine years before life took me down you know one of those unexpected serendipitous paths and where, where did it take you to well, uh, for a couple of reasons, but the primary one being my wife and I 
you know, struggling to coordinate our careers, I followed her to Los Angeles. And before I knew it, I was working for one of the Hollywood studios, MCA Universal. Uh, and uh, they they hired me as an experiment, an educator, right, to, to teach uh, me the business. And before I knew it, I was running companies for them. They, I moved back to New York to run USA Network when it was in its infancy and set it up the way it still pretty much runs today, the way I set it up back then. Uh, and now is extremely successful, of course. We bought a New York TV station, so I ran a New York TV station, oversaw that, oversaw the Brad Broadcasting Division, um, Ultimately, MCA was bought by a Japanese company, and Japanese companies can't own broadcast interests. I mean, foreign companies can't own broadcast interests in this country. And so we spun my division off into a separate public company. So I ran a public broadcasting company for a few years till it was sold to a larger broadcasting company. I took those winnings and bought a technology company, a, a public company. It took private, moved to Cam- up here to Cambridge, Massachusetts to run that company and uh and built that up over four and a half years to be uh, f- five times the size it was, 28 times the cash flow, and ultimately sold that uh, to a larger company. Um, all, and then I ran a, started and ran a film distribution company. Now, all that time I was running companies, 25 years I was running companies. I kept doing it because I was good at it, successful, and people kept asking me to do it. And um, but I kept my hand in. I was on the on the board of Bloomfield College in Bloomfield, mm-hmm. New Jersey. I was on the board of Antioch University, which is not Antioch College, Antioch University, which included Antioch College and five graduate schools spread across the country. Uh, I helped to found two foundations that had to do with uh, education. And I read the Chronicle of Higher <laughs> Education all those years because I really wanted to be a small college president. And then late in life, I, I uh, while I was running the film distribution company, I got approached about competing for the job at LaSalle, which was just 20 minutes from my home. A miracle occurred. I got the job. I'm now in my 15th year. Great. And and what were you doing those nine years in higher ed before you went off into the, the film and TV industry? I started in student services, really, in residence life. Uh, actually, it started even before my first job because one of my mentors was um, was an, an, an associate dean at Harvard who kind of took me under his wing and uh, and used me as a peer counselor before there were peer counselors. And we had a, a, a fellow student, a, a classmate, a friend of mine who was a bipolar. We didn't call it that back then. but um, And uh, he solicited my help in trying to keep him in school because he was bright enough he could do the work, but his disease, you know, made it hard. And we succeeded in that, and then so he started using me for others. So before I even graduated, I, I ended up being a resident director of a house at Smith College, believe it or not. With, I was married. My wife and I ran a house of 72 women at Smith, and um, and that got me started. I, I um, So I worked at Smith College. I worked. I got my master's degree at Ohio State, so I worked, I worked at Ohio State and uh, taught, did some teaching there, too. Um, went back to Harvard where I, well, in between, I, I did a stint, uh, doing consulting for the university of Indonesia for a year. Huh. Uh, that, that was an interesting assignment. Then I went back to Harvard as an assistant dean of freshman, kind of the, the same role that my mentor had had before he was still there, but they brought me in kind of the same role, uh, as he had at the time that I was an undergraduate. Um, and, um, so, uh, that, that was that was a live living in the freshman dorms, you know, kind of position doing counseling and advising and, and overseeing this, the, the residence life staff. Um, so a lot of it was that. And then, but, um, as I was pursuing my doctorate in, uh, at the Harvard graduate school of education, um, 
my wife moved to New York and we commuted, we commuted for a year and that was emotionally too difficult. So I ended up going to work uh, at Barnard college as an executive assistant to the president. So those jobs all together and that experience took about, took about nine years. And that must've been an interesting sort of training ground for what you went on to do in terms of be- being right there working with the president at Barnard. Well, more than you could imagine, uh, because there was a lot of turmoil then. So we're talking about the late 70s at a time when most of the women's colleges had merged or converted to co-ed and Barnard had not. Of course, Barnard's different because it's affiliated with Columbia. That you could take Columbia, could take Columbia courses. There was some crossover in dormitory life, um, but Columbia felt that they were at a disadvantage because they were still all men. And they were having enrollment problems, believe it or not, Columbia, having enrollment yep. problems in the late 70s. So they wanted Barnard to formally merge with them. And um, the president, the faculty, the alums of Barnard didn't want to do that. And the president had done a really good job. Of build, you know, Barnard was in, in good shape at the time. It was very strong and had a great faculty. And, uh, and, um, and um, the, the board of Barnard, though, was mostly older white men who'd gone to Columbia. There were, Bar- there were, Bar- there were Barnard alums on the board, but they all, every one of them worked for one of those men in their professional life, huh. you know, like was a lawyer who worked for the managing director of, of that firm, right. Uh, who was on the board. And, um, so the board really want, the board wanted, uh, Barnard to merge, uh, but they, but the, the, the president stood in the way. And of course I'd been working for the president. I was, I was, uh, so what the, they actually fired her without cause for no reason. Wouldn't give a reason. It really damaged her career because people assumed all kinds of nefarious things that weren't true. And I was left there as the one person who knew everything was going on. Wow. And so I had to deal with the board, uh, this board that had their priorities screwed up. And, uh, so that was quite an experience and, and not exactly the kind of lesson in ethical decision-making that you would expect from an institution of higher education. Right. And interesting that you retain, despite going through that at such a young point in your career, the ambition to take on a job like that at some point. Well, I told you there were a couple of reasons that I, that I ended up, you know, my career going down another path. Yep. And um, one was... Sorry. One Go ahead, was Mike. Yeah, one was because, uh, you know, coordinating our careers, and the other was because that was a disoriented, disorienting experience. Um, the The board actually tried to do things to weaken Barnard, and I, I called them on it and uh, threatened to go public with it with the New York Times, and and ultimately we came to an agreement that they would, they would restore the financial aid budget. They would not do the things that they were planning to do. As long as I left. <laughs> and so that was the deal. They would, they would uh, restore the financial aid budget, make sure Barnard wasn't, didn't come up short on their class the next fall as long as I resigned. So, so it, was a, it was disheartening. You know, I'd, my previous work had been at Harvard where, where, you know, honesty and integrity are the very, you know, very first thing. You know, at Harvard, if you, if you, if you even lie to an officer like me, you're out, you know, you're suspended. I mean, just, I mean, you just can't do it. And here we have, here we have the uh, board being disingenuous or worst. So, yep. so that was a disoriented thing. Um, 
when I was in California, I needed to get a job. I, I, I actually got four job offers in the same week. And one of them was from Caltech. Um, but, um, but I needed to make money at that point. <laughs> and I knew I could make more money at the, at the studio. Plus MCA university hired me without a job. And that was really interesting. Uh, plus we had gotten involved in the whole Hollywood scene cause my wife was an actress. And so, um, things happen when you're young. <laughs> yeah. No. So, so tell us how, how did the LaSalle opportunity come about? You'd been away from, even though you'd kept boards and other things, you'd been away from higher ed for a very long time then. Um, you know, had you looked at other presidencies before that, or was this a particular circumstance? Well, um, I told you I was on the board of Bloomfield College um, with a long-serving 15-year president, and I was the chair of the Academic Affairs Committee. And one day he says to me, you know, you'd make a good college president. And I said, you know, well, you know, that's what I really always want to be. So he introduced me to um, to someone at uh, – to one of the search people who do small college searches at Academic Search, a guy who was um, – you know, experience in the business, but nearing retirement. And he interviewed me. He said, you know, you'd be a good small college president. <laughs> and I said, so he said, oh, we'd like to, you know, put you in our database and, and include you because people are looking for, they like a lot of places like to have um, non-traditional candidates in their pool. And, uh, but then he did an unusual thing. He introduced me to the other search people in his firm. And then he introduced me to search people at competing firms. Really you know, just a one, I told you he's a wonderful guy yeah. and uh, that was proof. And uh, this guy I, I had only met, you know, like months before. And so the, so all the search firms that do small colleges got to know me. So I, I okay. They would approach me and occasionally I, if it was someplace I thought I could get my wife to go, I would, I would apply because I wasn't going to be sit. We weren't going to be separated right. again. You know? Yeah. And, um, and the, um, um, and so I, you know, one time I got to be a finalist, but I didn't get the job, uh, place not far from you actually. <laughs> and, um, and, the, and then, um, and then I'd gone off and started this film distribution company. I got older. I kind of thought that had my opportunity had passed. And then one day Isaac Miller calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, you know, would you like to, you know, put your hat in the ring for this job at LaSalle? And, and I looked into it and found that, you know, I drove by it 10 times a week and, you know, and, um, it didn't, despite the fact that I considered myself a small college kind of expert, I, I didn't know much about LaSalle, but when I looked into it, I said, well, that's interesting. They're, they're poised to take off if with the right kind of leadership. I applied. And as I said, a miracle occurred because I got the job. I say that because the finalists were, there were four finalists. Two of them were sitting presidents. One had been a president two places already. The third was, um, was a 39-year-old African-American woman who was the dean at, at Douglas College, the head of Rutgers. And uh, and I said, well, with that competition, I can maybe give myself a 10% chance. But, you know, when you come back and go through the gauntlet of the finalists of be there for a day and a half, it's kind of a – it kind of levels the playing field. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they just felt like I was the best fit and I got the job and it's worked out really well. So, so, so that, tell us, that 39 year old person, yeah. by the way, is someone you might know. Is Carmen, that, I'm guessing. Carmen, yeah. yes, is yeah. now is yeah. now Went the on uh, to be Oberlin president. First, first Cedar Crest, and is now the president of Oberlin. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. We worked together at Rutgers when Douglas went through what you were describing with Barnard, right? She was, she was, she was there at that time. So, right. Yeah. So, so tell us what, 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 what did, what, 
was LaSalle like when you when you came there 15 years ago? What was the, you know, what, what was the state of the college? What was it that you saw in the potential there? Because it's not easy, right? I mean, this is the most crowded higher ed market in the country in Boston. And so, um, you know, trying to figure out how you're going to compete successfully there, obviously, what, what, what would be a challenge. Well, LaSalle is the second oldest institution of higher education in the Boston area, meaning inside I-95 after Harvard. So it's been around a long time. But for most of that time, it was a two-year college for women. In the 70s, you know, women's colleges and two-year colleges went out of favor. You know, as as we said before about Barnard, most of them merged or became co-ed. LaSalle didn't. It just became weak. It just became small and weak. And by the mid-80s, it was down to three, four, under 400 students. It was on the verge of closing. And my predecessor came in and, and um, had, you know, uh, both academic and financial experience and, and, and kind of said, well, we're not going to spend any more money than we have, first of all, and then we're going to be carefully bring it back. And so right away, they became a four-year institution. Ten years later, became a co-educational institution. They had the brilliant idea of starting a retirement community on land that they owned, which has been extremely successful. 2003 started the graduate program. So made changes, but also were very careful with their resources, really pinching pennies all the way along and bootstrapping everything. So when I showed up, I saw I, 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 in 2007, there was something that uh, it was in a position where it kind of had gotten solid and had, a you know, between a thousand and eleven hundred students, and and was um, you know had a balanced budget, uh, but they had been pinching pennies. And I I said, you know, and along with the team that was there, uh, we said, hey, it's time to make some strategic investments and do you know at risk and try and create growth. And um, so so I was in the uh, in the position of uh, with with the team of being able to do that. Um, the graduate program had forty students at the time. Now it has 800, right? I mean, it, it had, um, the, we, we basically doubled everything in the first 10 years. Um, and, um, and some of that's more than doubled now. Uh, the, um, so it, it, you know, so we've made investments. We, some of them didn't work, right? Uh, some, many of them did. And, um, and we've been able to, to grow substantially. The, the endowment's almost triple what it was. The, the, the budgets double the, the faculty doubled in size. The the enrollment whole, total enrollments, you know, double. If you count both undergraduate and graduate is about double. Um, so um, so it's been successful. The the last couple of years, of course, have been more challenging. Sure. Uh, and we have we have been affected by COVID. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So I'd like to come back to a number of things you you just touched on, but but. Can you t- tell us a little more about that initial strategic plan? So when you got there, sounds like your predecessor had done a great job of stabilizing and growing the institution, added a number of key elements. So how did you sort of, because you weren't just new to LaSalle, but this was a, you know, you'd, you'd thought about being a college president for, for most of your life, but this was new coming in there. How did you go about sort of figuring out what the key initial priorities were going to be? What, what, what did that look like in terms of that first plan? Well, as I said, I'd been running companies for 25 years, reporting to boards for 25 years. I'd been on boards, both public, private companies and higher education boards. So I kind of knew a lot of the parts. And the job 
you know, people ask all the time, what's the difference? Is the, the job is 90% the same. It's, it's, it's not as different as you might guess. And I had developed an expertise in strategic planning, but I had my own approach. And so one of the first things uh, we did was embark on a strategic plan. There, there wasn't any recent one at LaSalle. And, um, and within the first four months, went through the whole process and got it approved by the board. It's, a, it's an approach that doesn't take a long period of time. It doesn't give you one of these thick things you put on a shelf. And there, no, it's, it's thin, it's direct, it's high level. But what it really is, is gets the whole community marching in the same direction after common goals for a common purpose. And, uh, and it's very um, specific in that the goals have to be measurable or concrete. They have to be something that's new, not just continuing to do something you're already good at. Um, and um, measurable, I think you know what that means. Concrete means at the end of whatever period you've designed this plan to cover, that you can be able to tell whether you achieved it or not, rather than just being someone's opinion. There are actually good strategies and goals that you can come up with that are just that you can't tell, but but that's not what we do in our process. And literally, we got hundreds of people involved, and so we had a plan. And people, you know, um, by and it culminates in a three-day meeting where they're representatives of every constituency. At the end, they get up and all agree that they're going to work together to achieve this plan. And when you do that, it usually happens. Last spring, uh, we created our fourth plan since I've been here. The other three, we used them up, usually before the period was up. So that means we achieved 90 or 95% of the goals. One or two we didn't achieve. Uh, one or two we, we, we were almost, we could see it was going to be achieved. And that's been a consistent pattern. Great. So, so what what have been some of the, the the really key milestones in those first three plans you did that that you're most proud of having achieved? It? Well, one one um, that comes to mind uh, right away is uh, diversifying the um, uh, the community. I think we had thirteen percent racially minoritized students when I came, and we set a goal of get eighteen percent in the first five years. Uh, of my being there. Uh, faculty was 4%. Uh, the uh, board was 4%. The staff was f- about 4 They were all under 5%. Um, and uh, But I had experience from doing that, and they actually won awards for dif- diversifying companies. And I had a particular approach for doing that that, that I kind of taught LaSalle, you know, how to do. And, um, and we blew those numbers away. We blew those goals away way before the five years. And, uh, you know, now we're 30%, you know, minority students. Uh, we got up to 28% minority faculty. It's probably 23, 24 now. One of the things is when you're successful, that people come and steal your, sure. steal your faculty. Yeah. Staff hasn't gotten quite that high, but it, it um, but it got up. I think it's, uh, I don't know what it is this year because we, we, it's gone up this year, but I think last year was 18%. Uh, and the board is, um, over 20% uh, minority. So, um, so, um, so we're certainly proud of that because it, it uh, when, when you're working on inclusion, intercultural competence, and uh, as we all are trying to do, it gives you a real advantage. Um, and uh, now it's harder to change the senior leadership because I had great continuity that I kept the people who were, who were there before I came and they stayed a long time, but now 14 plus years later, you know, half, half the senior ma- management team are minorities, half are women. Um, so even if you go and look, you know, at our leadership page, you see a, a lot of diversity. So it really helps when you're, when you're trying to, you know, doing the difficult, hard 
work and uh, work that you have to sustain of helping people understand how to learn from each other's differences, how to use that as a mechanism for growth and personal development, um, and then how to how to identify and and mitigate inequities that are built into your systems. Uh, it helps uh, to be able to make that kind of progress or, or be able to demonstrate that you've done it. Yeah, no, no question. So I, I wanted to come back to one of the things you mentioned your predecessor had done was actually how I first got to know you was LaSalle Village. Um, can you tell a little about the, the origins of, of how that, um, you know, full service retirement community came to be on the campus and how, how it operates with, with the campus and the university? Remember I said my grandfather told me how small colleges need other sources of revenue? Well, um, the team that was here in 1990 and that my predecessor was in his third year, maybe, they had a, a, a big plot of land that had been given to them um, with, the, with the caveat that you couldn't do anything with it for 25 years. And in 1990, that 25 years was up. So they said, what are we going to do with this land? And um, they weren't in a position yet to build like dormitories or, you know, things like that. Um, and I, I, it's still a mystery today how they came up with the idea of building a, a retirement community. But they came up with this idea of building a retirement community and um, uh, as a way to, um, you know, spread the, 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 the the, the ideal of lifelong learning and make it a reality. We, they, we already had two early childhood education programs on campus and, uh, and to make, and to make more money and to give another revenue stream, frankly, and that was a primary purpose of it. It then took 10 years to make it happen because the approval process, you know, um, neighbors and the city said, Oh, a retirement community in the middle of, of this, you know, suburban neighborhood. No, no, you gotta be kidding me. It'd be horrible. You know, the traffic and all these old people around, you know, I mean? and, um, and so there was, there was tremendous resistance, but, um, but perseverance, uh, held, uh, ha- there are some advantages in the law. One of the things we did was establish, uh, LaSalle village as an educational institution because the plan, which has uh, been implemented is that would be that the residents who live there would be required to engage in educational activity virtually every day of their lives for at least 450 hours per year. So think about that. It's more than an hour a day. And that allowed us to, to qualify as an educational institution, which gave us some advantages in zoning. And so we eventually overcame the resistance and uh, got the thing built. It was, there was originally a development partner as these things usually have. Um, and then um, something happened that turned out it probably was, probably seemed horrible when it happened, but it turned out to be a wonderful thing is for LaSalle, the development company as somewhere between 50 and 80% of the construction was done, they went bankrupt. And you go, can you imagine getting that call? Uh, we're filing for bankruptcy tomorrow. But what happened is that allowed LaSalle to buy it out for pennies on the dollar. And so LaSalle owns and operates a village, which means we get to keep all of the benefits, the intergenerational activity. We get to, we get to make sure that that's been built up over 20 years and we get to keep all the money. Uh, and so the two uh, LaSalle village and LaSalle university operate very closely together that I'm the CEO of LaSalle village. Uh, the person who runs it every day, the president of LaSalle village, you know, reports to me and is a, is a university employee. Um, and, um, and it's been extremely successful. One might say the premier, most successful, and certainly unique among retirement communities, perhaps in the world. Uh, so it's it's been a huge success. Um, 
when I came, it was still in its early years and was still trying to find its feet, you know, especially operationally and financially. But, but now it's, it's, it's uh, clicking on all cylinders. And, um, you know, I, when, when I had first heard the story from you about that, the, the idea that in, in many ways it's secret sauce, that, that the idea of it being an educational institution, it, it was in some ways a maneuver to finally get the planning permission to do it, but that that has been a core of its success, both financially, but I think you have good, good evidence that it's had very, very positive health and satisfaction outcomes for the residents. Yes. So uh, you're right. In the in in the mid '90s, when trying to get this thing approved, it was a, a lawyer who was working for a bright lawyer who was working for um, for the university on this project who came up with the idea of building in this requirement, applying to for educational status that then would make it eligible under what's called the Dover Amendment and in. in um, in Massachusetts, which then um, gives you a significant advantage in getting such projects approved. For instance, in my time, we've done a hundred million dollars worth of construction at LaSalle, so much of which was originally resisted uh, by you know the neighbors of the city. All of which eventually got done. So, um, and and but that turned out to be genius from an operating point of view. Um, and um, the uh, what was the second part of what you asked? Oh. The, the health outcomes, the health and, outcomes, and, and right? Satisfaction outcomes. Yeah. So we also started. We have an. We, we received when it opened. We received an endowment for a donor of a million dollars to set up a research institute called um, the Fuss Institute for Research on the Study of Aging and Intergenerational Studies, and um, it, the hope was to be able to study that. But it turned out we couldn't. We couldn't get any grant money because there's no control group for what it's so unique. There's no there's no way to have a control group. Um, But we believe that it um, and and now it's been there long enough that we believe um, that it does have um, uh, benefits. For instance, we've gone now, I think, five or six years without a, a single person ending up in a memory care unit. Um they go straight to death. You know, they, they, uh, you know, they skip the memory care unit stage because, uh, um, because, and we think that's because of the, the intellectual activity of going to class every day and, and also the social activity that's attached to that because you're socially involved. Even during the pandemic, when people couldn't, couldn't congregate, we managed to keep the uh, educational element going every day and the social interaction, even though they weren't face to face. And that really uh, also uh, resulted in better uh, health outcomes than other other uh, senior living facilities uh, anywhere in the country. So it's been um, we can't prove it still. <laughs> you know, I can't scientifically prove it. But Atul Gawande, who's you know considered one of the experts in this yeah. area and uh, writes from New York, if you look at some of his articles, he's frequently mentioned LaSalle Village as uh, as an example of what he's talking about that. You know, in his book, Being Mortal, he talks about how, you know, as as senior living went, evolved into assisted living and it kind of took on the goal of keeping people healthy and safe, keeping people alive and safe. And um, and that had certain outcomes. But what he discovered if, is if a place, instead of focusing on that, focus on the quality of life as you age, it turns out your quality of life is better and you enjoy it more. And and you live longer. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you get better outcomes from focusing on that than you do on directly trying to keep people alive. Um, and LaSalle Village is an example of that. 
And can you say a little more about the educational component, what those educational activities look like in that 450 hours? I think it's fascinating that by you know you, the self-selection that happens where not every senior is going to be looking to be in college for the rest of their lives, but those who are coming in, this is part of what they're signing up for. And so how does that interface with the, with the rest of the university? Well, obviously, it self-selects for people who want that. Uh, so there are people who come and examine it and say, well, I got to go to class every day. No, thanks. I'm going someplace else. But on the other hand, even during the Great Recession, we remained full because there was always demand for what it is we offer. And um, so the options, there are many options. So people, residents of LaSalle Village, they can take any course they want at the college, at the university. There are specific courses that we promote to each time, each semester that we think will they'll they would like and enjoy, but they can sign up for anything. Um, they we have as people aged in place, sometimes a fifteen week course turned out to just be too much to do. So a number of faculty members now offer courses where they've developed a module in the beginning. A lot of our courses are problem based or project based. In fact, almost all of them. So they would develop a project, like a three week project in the middle, and they would invite. LaSalle Village residents to come in and just participate in that project or or that activity with the class for those three weeks. So that's another way. We also deliver courses and activities specifically for them in their facility. LaSalle Village are, are 16 buildings connected by bridges and tunnels, and, and each one has some kind of educational facility in it, a, a high-tech classroom, a fitness room, an art studio, a woodworking shop. Um, and um, all those things count as educational activities. Uh, even if you, even if a group goes to the symphony together and comes back and then talks about it afterwards, that counts, right? And um, we, but everybody has to report on their hours, and, and then we return that into the city because we have to prove that we're an educational institution. We have to keep proving. I think the last time I looked at the actual average was 550 hours per year. Um, so there's there's all kinds of ways they can fulfill that uh, obligation. None of them think it's an obligation. You know, they're very involved in committees and on boards and stuff. You'll be in a meeting with them and, and the meeting will be half over and said, well, I got to go now because my class is starting. <laughs> and, they, and they always they always prioritize their, their class. Um, in fact, we have people over 100 years old attending class every day. We have people in the skilled nursing facility, which means they're supposed to be in kind of the last stage of life, who wheel themselves out of there to go to class. That's awesome. how strong the impulse is, how, you know, yeah. uh, to, um, to participate in that activity. And, and you mentioned that one of the core impetus for this was the diversification of revenue. So once it finally got approved and up and running in full, how much of the overall university revenue was coming from this for, 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 the, for the institution? Um, well, it's... The, the, it won't, might not seem like a lot. The, uh, I think it's about 4% of the total revenues of the, of the university come from LaSalle Village. And then we incur expenses against that. So the, so our, our net for that is, is less, uh, but it's positive. You know, it is a, it is a, from the university's point of view, it's a profit center and they get services from the university for that money that uh, at a price that's lower than what it would cost them to do it themselves or to obtain it from a third party. Um, for instance, they pay, I think, about $250,000 a year for information technology. There's no way they could do it on their own for less than a million. Uh, and uh, so that gives you an idea of the power of shared services between the two organizations. 
And that, that that's replicated across education and maintenance and uh, security and technology, right. a number of areas. And when you say four percent, that that's direct things that the 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 university is providing to it. But in terms of the overall, because they're all part of one corporation, right? No, that, no. no, they're not. Okay. No, uh, they're two separate 501c3 corporations, but there's a holding company over them. And the holding company is the sole member of each and ultimately theoretically has control. But each of the each of the uh, two separate corporations has its own fiduciary board it's, and um, its own um, financial audited financial statements. Its assets and liabilities are separate, but the management is common. So that's management and services are common. That's how both organizations save money and um, and how the university turns that into a source of revenue and income. Right. So so to ask my question another way, within that overall corporation, the single one, what was the size of LaSalle Village relative to the college or university at, when, when it uh, came? Uh, when it, well... When it started, what now point makes sense. Well, you now, know, what, now, what, now, now, now's what makes sense. Right now's what makes sense. If you, um, it, uh, the Thel Village is about a twenty million dollar operation. Uh, that's that's what its budget is, and um, the and um, the university net of financial aid, if you if you take the yeah. net, right. uh, is about a sixty million dollar operation. Right. Okay, so it's Great. significant. Yep, absolutely. So. There, there are a number of other colleges and universities that have um, retirement communities co-located on them, Penn State, Florida, others, but none as far as I'm aware that's gone anything like the extent you have. Why, why given the demographics, the huge growth we're seeing in baby boomers, why don't you think there have been other imitators of this given the success of the model? Well, LaSalle Village has gotten publicity all over the world because of this model. Um, it is has a very high rating, you know, both in terms of its its credit rating and its you know quality ratings. You know, it has the highest rated skilled nursing facility in the state. It, it um, you know it has an A rating from Fitch. It, uh, um, and so people have all over the years constantly come to look at it. In fact, so much that it got to be a burden. We had to start charging for people to come, but. Um, and uh, and they'd say this is great. We want to do this. And then they found out it wasn't so easy. So um, nobody has been able. The people started out genuinely wanting to replicate it, but they haven't been able to. I think they're. I'm not sure the reasons, but I have theories. One, they usually get pushback from the faculty at the beginning, and LaSalle did too. LaSalle did, but LaSalle, but once the faculty started to experience it and learn how to do it, it became, it turned into a positive. Now they love having, you know, residents in their classes. But so like many things, the, the specter of it was different than the reality. Uh, but I think that I know of institutions where the faculty is just, you know, put up resistance and administration kind of gave in. Um, the other, the other reason I think is because this the sane part way of doing this because these investments to build these places huge is the same way as to have a partner and those development partners say you got to be kidding we're going to require people to to go to class uh nobody will sign up we won't get the pre-sales we need if we do that now that's wrong but that's what they think and since they're bringing most of the money the the, the educational institution gives in uh, now there are two that are 
in process that swear they're going to do it. Um, uh, one bear at Barry college, they're building a facility right now and they're in, they're in their pre-sale period. They're in their, they're selling places now. Um, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see, um, if they really pull it off. And the other is, is purchase in New York. Um, which, um, there it's, a, you know, they had to, they had to actually get approval from the legislature to do this. I mean, it, it took a long time system, yeah. yeah, by the public system and, and, uh, and I, and the president's changed there. So I, I'm not sure exactly where they are in their process, but I know, uh, at least the previous president, it was his goal to, to try and uh, do this. Now, a lot of them provide access, right? They'll, even at Penn yeah. state, you can audit the courses, but there has to be room in the course. You have to get permission and you have to pay extra and not a lot, but you have to pay extra. So there, so we've, you know, more than once we've surveyed, there are over a hundred of them, by the way, around the country already. And we've, we've surveyed them and, um, and they, they fall into different categories. Sometimes the affiliation is very loose, uh, maybe just a ground lease, you know, or, uh, uh, other times it's, you know, uh, closer, but, um, the, the, the participation rates in education, all, everybody offers some kind of educational uh, act, activity, uh, ranges from 4 to 20%. At LaSalle Village, it's a 100% by definition. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in the midst of our own experiment with it. So we, we've actually ended up adopting the eco-village model from Ithaca, New York, on our sustainability campus. So we're about halfway there in deposit. So we've got 18 of the 35 we need for the first phase, but but I think it will be great. It, this is more multi-generational, but, but it's definitely gonna have an emphasis on the intergenerational learning. So, so I wanted to ask you about a couple of the other really innovative things that, that you helped initiate during your tenure. Um, one is a cooperative one, the Low Cost Models Consortium. Um, and so I'd love to, to hear about the, the origins of that, um, how it came about, um, and, and sort of how you've seen it evolve. Well, as you know, from your experience that um, small, you know, small medium-sized colleges and universities meet once a year at the Council for Independent Colleges President's Institute. And, uh, and you know, I was had, you know, some experience with collaborative kinds of efforts between institutions and and. I wanted to talk to some other presidents about the idea of, of getting together to talk about what does it mean that our business model is broken? And if it is, how do, you know, how do we develop new business models? Everybody's talking about it, but I don't see anybody doing anything about creating new models. And so at, um, the meeting was in San Diego that year and, and, uh, two other presidents and I sat down and talked about it and they immediately said, we have to do this. We have to do this. Uh, those were Carol Leary at Bay path and, uh, Shirley, Shirley, uh, um, uh, what's Shirley Booth. What's Shirley's last name, uh, at, um, at Houghton college and the president of Houghton college. And, and they, so we all said, let's talk to our friends about it. So we started talking to friends before we know, knew what we had, um, about 10, you know, who wanted to talk about this further, uh, Lumina Foundation provided an opportunity for us to get together in Indianapolis in their offices, uh, which we did, and that was in June of 2015. And that got us going. And, and our our objective at the beginning was simple, was what are the new business models? How can we experiment with new models? How can we help each other experiment with new models? How can we encourage each other? So we really just started out as a mutual support society saying, uh, you know, um, let's pilot some, some 
experiments. Let's uh, give each other critical, you know, constructive criticism. Um, help us to each other to overcome the impediments we would receive, which we knew there'd be resistance for change that radical in our in our organizations, um, and and give each other moral support. We also then talked about developing programming together as one way to try and bring down costs over the long term. Now we knew you'd have to do a lot of it to really bring down the costs, but you got to start somewhere. And we, so we did in January of 2017 at CIC, we made it, we made it formal and uh, signed agreements, started paying dues, signed, uh, got a consultant to help us facilitate and organize things uh, who was a former president herself. Um, and then it, it grew. Well, at first we agreed to keep it at no more than 20 institutions, but then uh, it got to the point where we had we had a joint program in certified financial planning. We uh, uh, we had a lot of experiments started at individual institutions, including at LaSalle. And so we decided to open it up. We, re- we removed the dues and, uh, and started a course sharing program that would allow us um, a source of revenues. We also attracted quite a bit of, of, um, foundation support. We're, we're just shy of a million dollars so far in foundation support that we received, which provide, you know, covered a lot of the operating costs of uh, getting some of the joint programming up to building the platform for course sharing. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's really helped us and we, we still haven't used up all that money yet. Um, so it's grown to where it's now, I think the latest counts 110 institutions all across the country. Um, we have, um, you know, multiple examples of program, collaboration and sharing. Uh, we, um, we have experiments that have been going at some places for years of lower, you know, of ways that students can go through our institutions at lower cost, meaning they pay less. Um, figuring out how to generalize those and make those broader is, you know, we, I, honestly, we haven't figured that out yet. Um, but that's, that's the goal. It's a long-term goal the lower cost models for independent colleges consortium is to reduce the out-of-pocket cost for students 30 to 50 percent so in other words they won't have to borrow as much money um and um that's a that's a tall order because you can't we know you can't do that by just cutting costs so it means operating in a different way sharing resources uh sharing uh academic uh you know, access to our academic programs. Um, it means uh, collaborating in innovative ways in or, and teaching in different ways. Ironically, we learned something about teaching in different ways. Our faculty in particular did during the pandemic because they sure. were forced to. Um, and I'm hoping that that will accelerate our progress because the faculty have learned that there's more than one way to do this. And I'd like you to elaborate, if you could, on I think the the, the most significant of those efforts you've done at LaSalle, specifically on, with the LaSalle Works program, in terms of thinking about a way to, um, to 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 lower the cost for students, but also to to you know something that would really benefit the the institution as well. Yes. Yeah, so we um, during this time that the same time that um, the lower cost models was started and building we we started our own program first as a pilot and then as a real program called LaSalle Works and it's it's now in the fourth year of its rollout so the first cohort to start is now are now seniors and what LaSalle Works is is um is a 
a program that's more even more career oriented than our normal you know programs which are already career oriented in that the way it works is that the students they opt to enter this program when they come into LaSalle they have to choose they want to do this alternative program. The first year is the same as anybody else. You come to come to class, you get, you, get, you develop friendships the last lifetime, get to know your faculty. But the second year, in your sophomore year, you're not in residence. Whether you're a commuter or a residence student, you're, you're, you're not coming to campus. You're out in the world working at a job, 16 to 20 hours a week, paid, and you're taking online courses with LaSalle at the same time. Two of those courses are supporting and, and related to the job job experience. So you're taking advantage of the fact that they're working to teach them things like customer service um, principles, organizational development, supervisory subordinate relationships, um, and, um, and also an opportunity to reflect on their experiences and write about it. Um, and the other eight courses are courses that sophomores are likely or required to take. And uh, because those courses are online, because the whole core cohort's doing the same thing. They tend to be full courses or online courses, so that it's less expensive for us to deliver. They're not using all the other resources on campus for that. So, so that's what allows us to reduce the amount they pay. So in the in their second year, their scholarship or their financial aid grows four thousand dollars more. In their junior, eight thousand dollars more, and in their senior year, ten thousand dollars more. Uh, and if they're a resident student, they save the save the room and board from their sophomore year. So they, so it reduces their out of pocket costs by twenty two to forty thousand dollars, depending on their personal circumstances. It changes a little depending on their financial aid status. But for lower income students, by the time they're in their junior senior year, their their out of pocket cost is basically zero. And we weren't able to provide that before. We were never able to get to where someone's full need was covered. And if you're in the LaSalle Works program and you, and you persist to your junior year, if you're a low-income student, you're, you're pretty much covered. And, and was a driver of that with the growth that you had that this was a way to increase your on-campus capacity um, because you would have, for these students, effectively one out of four years where, where they're not there? No. Uh well, yes, sort of, because we were full at the time. So we, we did imagine that if, you know, a fourth of the class was was not in residence, that we would have, you know, additional beds to sell. Um, but um, but since then, that's not been the case. Um, so um, so I can't it, – it, it, it does theoretically open up, um, increase our capacity, but we have not been able to take advantage of that yet. Um, I can't even prove – whether it's attracted more students to the cell yet. Uh, and that's partly because of the pandemic got in the way. Well, we had hoped to do our first evaluation last summer, but, you know, so if you follow it, what they do is when on junior year, they come back to campus, right? Well, because co- that was the COVID year for the first right. cohort. Not they didn't come back. back. Right. They're yeah. already used to doing online. We were giving reduced tuition for remote study. So naturally they studied remotely again. Yeah. So now they're back this year. Um, but, you know, so we, we need them to be back. And the juniors, um, uh, the seniors are back and the, and the juniors are back. So now next summer, we think, is the first time we can really do a solid evaluation to understand, you know, how successful it's been. And, and of the, course, we're learning things and tweaking it as we go along. Yeah. And the jobs they're doing in their sophomore year, are those ones that you've arranged and are they related to their, um, their choice of degree subject? 
They do not have to be related to their major. Internship have to be related to your major. They're not internships. They're jobs. They, they are, you have to, you know, get up and show up every day and go to your job and do the job. So they, they can literally be anything. Um, uh, yes, we help them get jobs, but it turns out we seldom have to. Most of our students already have jobs or, or can get jobs. They already have work experience. Even before LaSalle works, 70% of our students were working at jobs either on or off campus. Some of those were just weekend jobs and they, you know, they leave campus to go work on the weekends. But um, it turns out that, you know, um, out of uh, 80 students that, you know, need to find jobs um, in sophomore year, maybe we've helped in each year. So one to five have needed help, <laughs> you know, and um, um, now things happen. Somebody, somebody, you know, they, it is possible to lose a job, especially during COVID, right? And they have to, So there have been cases where they've had to find other jobs, but, but you know, because they were in the program, they tended not to get laid off. You know, the employers, you know, the employers have signed up to be part of the program. And so I think that influences them, you know, if they're, if they're in a situation where they're laying off, they pretty much don't. Some people get better jobs in the middle and switch jobs. That's okay. Uh, as long as they keep working. Um, so they have to keep working. And, um, and so it's very interesting. Uh, so all kinds of things happen. Now, some of them do get jobs in the area of their major. Um, and more and more we're finding people who, who sign up at the beginning already have that lined up. Um, we had somebody who, who, um, we had a student, a high school student who, uh, who wanted to, he was struggling between whether to go to college or work in New York because he had an ability to, to work at major league baseball, you know, a low level position in major league baseball. And, um, and when he found about, out about LaSalle works, he said, wait a minute, you mean for my sophomore year, I could go work there and still be in college. So, so he, he, uh, he sent his deposit in the next day. <laughs> I mean, um, and, and that's happening more frequently now where, where people already have, they're planning ahead, you know, they're figuring this out that, and so those do tend to be in the area of their major. So he was a sport management major. And, um, and so um, it's happening more, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, it, what we do find, one of the positive things, by the time they get to their internship, <laughs> they already know what they're doing. They know what it's like. And so then they move into a job that is in the area of their major and they tend to do well. And is there a reason, I mean, you have with Northeastern nearby, right? You have a, a very strong co-op model. Was there a reason as employers are signing up, you weren't trying to get a closer alignment between the work and the, and, and the, the study? We didn't want it to be an early internship. We didn't want it to be a paid internship. We, and, um, and, and we frankly thought that would be harder because they're, because they're just sophomores. Right. And, um, so we didn't want to make that requirement. We didn't want it to be an early internship. We wanted it to be different than that. And it's, you know, and, it, and we wanted to limit the hours because they're taking five courses at a time at the same time. So, you know, um, you have to sign agreements to do this, right? You and the employer have, the employer has to sign just saying, we'll pay at least minimum wage, minimum wage or more, 16 to 20 hours per week. And we'll agree to give you feedback on the student and the program. That's it. Right. And that feedback can be oral, but, um, uh, but still there, you know, um, there is someone checking, is this an appropriate place to work? Is this an appropriate employer? Um, we, so we do have staff who are doing that. Great. 
Now, Michael, fairly recently, you made the transition from college to university. Can can you say a little about um, what led to that? It sounds like for quite a while, you'd been in the graduate business, you'd been doing it. What, what Was that uh, a fairly straightforward thing once you decided it, or was that, that something that needed convincing for the, the faculty or the board? Or It needed convincing, but not when we did it. Um, at one of our earlier strategic planning meetings, we did a module on college versus university. And, um, and at the, before we even started the discussion about it, I, I asked the group, uh, which was faculty heavy, um, do, um, how many people think, you know, we should change the university? Uh, 25%. Yes. 75%. No. Then we had a whole discussion about what would it take? What would have to change for us to become a, a university? And we came up with a whole list of things, which is published in our in our strategic planning report, the internal report. And um, and then I said, now, if we achieve 50% of the things on this list, how many of you think, you know, we should change the university? Two-thirds said yes. One-third said no. And that was several years before. Um, we actually, and then, uh, so we did it again in 2019. So I think it was, that was... Uh, it was five years later, five years later. And we had, we had a lot of those things on that list and more than 50% of those things on that list had occurred, including the fact that the graduate had become a very significant element. There were many, many programs and many more students, a significant staff, uh, doing, uh, both graduate degrees and professional studies and, uh, on the, just starting up an online bachelor's completion program. And, um, so we, we'd be, we'd become more complex. So by the time we got there, university was more of a reflection of what we'd become than what we, you know, aspired to. So, um, and with LaSalle Village, that, that, you know, factor, it just had become a, not, not particularly large, but more complex institution with more elements to it. We thought it would have marketing advantages and, um, and our, our, some of the older alums didn't, weren't too happy about it, but all of the younger alums were in favor of it. All the students were in favor of it. Um, they felt basically it would help their resumes. And we thought maybe we thought it would help particularly the graduate program. Now the graduate program since then has, has grown very fast, but that was also, you know, COVID happened right after that. So it's really, again, it's really hard to evaluate whether university, you know, changing university, how beneficial it's been because the, the growth of the graduate program could have been because people were out of jobs and because, you know, or, or, working fewer hours or looking to change their careers. Um, and, um, so that we, we think that had a lot more to do with it. In addition to the fact that we were adding programs and we had, we have a particular one particularly hot program. So, um, so again, COVID's frustrated us in our evaluation processes around that as well. Um, can, can you say a little, the, a big part of every college president's job is fundraising. You mentioned the big increase in the endowment. I understand recently you got a quite transformative gift for the university. Can you talk about sort of what went into making that possible um, and, and the gift? I think uh, in my experience and in talking to colleagues like yourself, a lot of these things are accidental or, or, uh, fortuitous. And I would say it's, it's not accidental, uh, but it, it, it's something that happened in the past before I was here that came to fruition, uh, in recent times. And just this 
Monday, uh, we had an event here uh, on campus to name our business school after a graduate, um, a, a young woman who graduated uh, from here in 1995. Um, and um, what happened was that this young woman had, was born with cystic fibrosis, bad, you know, really bad case, very difficult in and out of hospitals her whole life, tough, tough life, you know, to get through, but she made her way to LaSalle and at LaSalle, she got an extraordinarily amount of support and help and, in, in how to deal with it. She still had to go to the hospital some of the time, but their teachers helped her and staff helped her and, and the kind of thing you can do at the small place. And, and I remember in the nineties, it was still very small. And, um, and it was, it was, according to her mother, it was the only bright spot in her life. The time she spent here was when she succeeded. She did very well academically. In fact, she won the book award in her major, you know, uh, and she, uh, and she had a real social life, uh, which, you know, up to that point she hadn't had. So, so, um, in uh, talking over the years with her mother, who was a modest donor, uh, you know, but I visited and, and, um, you know, she told me about, how uh, the young woman's name was Michael. Uh, Michael's life was um, was a tough life. Afterwards, she continued, you know, have trouble. She she got married. She worked uh, as a marketing executive, but she had to have a double lung transplant. Didn't work. She and she passed away eight years after she graduated. So the way her mother and that was difficult for her parents, you know, and that's an old only child. And um, but but her mother just remembered that. The one time in her life, she was happy in life was when she was at LaSalle. So in 2018, I get a call from her. So, you know, more than 20 years later, 15 years after she died, uh, get a call from her mother and say, um, you know, she had, they had this family foundation that had been created by the mother's parents. So Michael's grandparents, when they, when they retired, um, and they had subsequently passed away, um, that, that the mother ran, you know, ran the found the family foundation. And for reasons we don't have to go into, they needed to liquidate the foundation. The foundation was largely made up of stock stock in the private company, a family owned private company, a construction company. And, um, so she distributed that stock to two organizations, one that does Alzheimer's research because her parents both died of Alzheimer's and the other to LaSalle. And that was great because that, and we got, you know, we, we, put it in our, you know, the stock certificate in our safe and we valued it based on a third party evaluation, um, and, um, counted that in our endowment. Two years later, I was able to negotiate with that company to sell that piece of paper back to them for $6.6 million, all cash up front. And for LaSalle, that's the largest that if you call that a gift, I mean, the, you know, um, that would make it the largest gift in the history of the college. And we thought that was deserving of a significant naming opportunity and chose to name the business school, the Michael Longy 95 school of business, which just happened this week. Um, and that's, that's been one of the elements that's added to our endowment. Um, along with the fact that during, uh, during COVID we haven't, We've, we haven't drawn excess money from the endowment. In fact, we, we've drawn less than we normally draw. Uh, and, um, and the market returns have been high, too. So our, um, our financial underpinning has gotten nothing but stronger in the last few years, even while operating budgets have just been very difficult to manage. Sure. Um, 
in speaking of difficult to manage, you know, for all college presidents, none of us thought we were going to be in the public health business. But these last 18 months have obviously been a, a huge learning experience. You've had the additional challenge of having a, a full retirement facility on, on your campus. Can you talk about how you've navigated that? And and you mentioned that you're hoping there will be some lasting benefits that come from this. What do you see that looking like for, for LaSalle? I hope I can remember all those questions. Sorry. Uh, since I'm of an age where I qualify to enter LaSalle Village myself now. Um, the university benefited from a number of things, including the fact that we have access to reasonably priced testing in Massachusetts. Um, but uh, we also benefit from the fact that LaSalle Village had to move quickly and learn things fast. And we learned from them things that we were then able to apply that caused the LaSalle University to be one of the safe, their campus to be one of the safest places on earth. <laughs> LaSalle Village wasn't at the beginning. In that first month, April of 2020, we actually lost six people. Now, those people were all in decline, but they, but COVID put them over the edge. And um, and they quickly had to adjust and, and became a leader in how senior living communities should um, protect themselves um, and um, put in protocols and space in procedures and operations. And, um, you know, visitors didn't get to come for a long time, including family members couldn't come. People were stuck in their, in their apartments. But as I said, we kept, we had the fortune, good fortune of having closed circuit TV in everybody's apartment. So the, the educational classes were able to continue through closed circuit and, and through zoom, um, the, the residents themselves invented ways to be socially interactive, even while they were physically separated. Uh, so we learned a lot of things that very quickly we had to apply, uh, at the university, uh, and we did. Uh, and, um, because of the, you know, the spring break that came that we, the people did not come back for that spring any place right here. So by the next fall, we had our act together. We knew about how to do the protocols, how to, how to talk to the community about, about, um, uh, adhering to the protocols and we had the testing, uh, and we were able to test everybody twice a week. Um, and that, uh, that allowed us to have extremely low infection rates. We never had an outbreak. We never had anybody go to the hospital. Uh, and after that April, after that first month, that April 20, that also was true at the village. Haven't lost anybody else. Haven't had, uh, really had, we had (coughs) one person shortly in the hospital. Um, but, um, but really have been able to fend off, uh, this deadly disease, for that whole period since. And that's uh, continued right into through this semester. So one, you can say we've been fortunate, but two, um, two, I think we've, we've, our community has come together. Um, our COVID-19 task force has, um, has, you know, staff and faculty and experts and, and it has LaSalle village residents on it, including an immunologist and virologist, a public health expert, you know, uh, you know, um, who are, we're really up there in terms of their experience and knowledge. And that's been a huge benefit. Um, I know with the low cost models consortium, many of the other things you've done, you've really been thinking about the changing competitive environment for smaller private institutions. I'm curious, what do you see ahead for us in the next decade? Um, You know, there seem to be an awful lot of trends out there that are, if anything, only going to intensify the pressures on them. How do you see it unfolding in terms of, you know, consolidations, closures, new business models? 
So obviously, as the founder of the Lower Cost Models Consortium, I, I, I think that the model, we do have to come up with new models. The, I do think the business model is broken, which means that the, that the habit of increasing tuition every year and increasing financial aid uh, with creeping tuition discounts, it, uh, there comes a point where that doesn't work financially. Um, it affects your ability to improve the quality of your student services or the student experience so that has to change and i said ultimately it there there aren't that many ways to change it because we can't cut to it we don't have despite what you might read in the press we don't have too many employees we don't pay them too much they can all make more money doing something else um so you can't cut to it so you have to do things differently including teach differently and i think on during the pandemic and i think this part of your last question is we we did learn about about different ways of teaching and ways to make more use of technology. We all added technology in our classrooms. For instance, we now record all classes through through our learning management system and another piece of technology. We record all classes. Well, it turns out now students can go back and review the class. If they miss class, they can watch no more of the sharing notes stuff. They can go watch the class. And um, that, that alone, that one thing changes the world for the students. Uh, and there are many such examples, but the main one is that the faculty learned a lot about adjusting their teaching to the different learning styles of individual students. There's been talk about that forever, ever since uh, Howard Gardner's book about multiple intelligences came out, but now faculty are actually learning how to do it. And that that's a game changer um, in terms of how well students do. Ultimately, it should affect retention. Um, but it also means that faculty understand that there are different ways to do it because they're going to have to teach differently in order to get the cost down in a way that uh, will work. Now, you asked about affiliations and combinations. I truly believe that has to happen. We have some experience with that. We've done shared services with two other institutions that were hugely successful in terms of improving services while saving money. Um, twice we, pro we provide services to other universities, other colleges where they saved money, we made money, and the, and the level of service went up. Um, so I know that that can be done, but I have also learned it's really hard to do. I've been talking to other institutions now for a long time about shared services or about even more significant combinations than just shared services. I can get a lot of presidents who are interested and see the benefits and want to do it. And they run up against boards who aren't ready for it or don't want to hear it. Um, recent experience, uh, another uh, president who really believes it's the right thing. And we agreed the thing to do was to get me in front of their board so I could just explain it to them, answer the questions, because I've been working on this a long time. They refused to meet with me. Almost because they were afraid I might convince them. You know, and um, and I've had that experience multiple times. I had experience with one board before uh, where, you know, I really felt we could have helped them. And I told them, well, OK, and they they canceled my appearance for the board a day before. And I said, OK, but don't come back to me six months later because I I can see from your numbers. It's going to be too late. Sure enough, six months later, they came back to me. I said, it's too late. You're out of money. And they closed. They didn't have to. Um, so. Uh, it's a very difficult area to to actually take action. There are some, you know, examples. There are a lot of examples that are put out there as positive examples that are not what I'm talking about because the in the process an institution disappeared. I don't think that's necessary. So in our area, we um, 
Uh, no, no, we um, Wheelock, Wheelock College disappeared. I mean, they said you know they merged with BU. No, they they got subsumed, and uh, BU is going to figure out what to do with their land. Pine Manor kind of gave them themselves and their and their uh, real estate to Boston College, and Boston College will exploit that land, but Pine Manor won't exist anymore. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about combinations where. Uh, the institutions can continue to exist under their own uh, name and legacy with their uh, own accreditation, uh, but benefit from being aligned with other institutions so that you can share services, you can um, align your academic offerings to be more efficient, so you can share courses and, and students, uh, you can improve the the, uh, the options that students have. Um, there are a lot of things you can do if you can if you could really do that. And in some cases, you that that combination could be in a place where the reputation of one of the of one of the institutions could rub off on the other, and help it actually. Uh, become more attractive to students. I think there are many such instances. If you could get the boards to see that vision and and execute on it, and understand that in most cases, financially, there's no risk involved, because almost all private colleges have underlying assets that are not on the balance sheet. Primarily, their real estate. Uh, all the Massachusetts um, places that re, uh, colleges that recently closed. They closed because they ran out of cash. They couldn't pay their bills anymore. They couldn't make payroll. But they closed. They sold their assets. They paid off all their liabilities. Secured, unsecured. Every liability was paid, and there was money left over. Every single time. And uh, there's something wrong with that picture. Right? Right? There's something wrong with that picture. And um, and if if we could get trustees to recognize that there's a, there's ways to take advantage of it by, by combining organizations under a common umbrella um, that shared services that, you know, uh, when you do that, if you, if you, if you actually have a change in control, you can put that real estate on the balance sheet because uh, it, it qualifies as an acquisition. And uh, so your financial profile changes, your uh, credit rating changes, your ability to borrow money changes. <laughs> and um, um, there, there's huge benefits to doing it. But, um, you know, there's a great reluctance to give up any kind of control uh, or or even the perception of control. Um that's that's holding us back as a as an industry, uh, and this applies in public too. This is not just private. I'm talking about. You do see some of the publics doing it. Georgia, they merged a bunch of the state colleges. Just, just added it here in Pennsylvania. Three, yeah, yeah. three in the west and three in the east. You have it there. Connecticut's trying to make it happen. Yep. So you, you, some of the publics are actually doing it, um, but, but you don't. Also slow and painful, of course, because of the public process around it too. Oh yeah, yeah, it's very very difficult, but. Um, um, so I, I think, you know, why shouldn't we be doing it? Why shouldn't we be getting our act together and helping each other, supporting each other by becoming part of a common organization? Just, just the, just the sharing of expenses, uh, can, can be a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Might be a little long for someone to listen to. Well, <laughs> um, so in terms of the trends that are disrupting higher ed, I'm, I'm curious about a, a couple of others um, as you look at forward. One 
is sort of the entrance of the the mega universities, the ASU, Southern New Hampshire in your backyard, Western governors. Um, you know, we, we dealt with, and I think they're on the wane now, the for-profits, but, but this presence of places that are aspiring to be 300,000 or more students um, and, and obviously having scale, but with higher quality, I think, than, than we saw before. How, how much of an influence do you think that is for the smaller privates? And then what, what do you think about in terms of, of sub-degree level things, certificates, micro-credentials, other qualifications? So you you tend to ask several questions at one time. So the uh, so about the mega universities, um, you know, I, I you know if we don't recognize that as a wake up call, it's not just that they're mega; it's how they're doing it, right? Because they are teaching in different ways, right? They they are delivering at lower cost, and um, we you know in our traditional methods we don't hold up well against that. Now there are people the. the the contradiction here is there's a whole bunch of people who still want that residential experience and their parents want it. It's just that they can't necessarily afford it uh, or not enough of them can afford it for to sustain this, you know, the number of residential colleges that are around. So at LaSalle, we have that problem. And that's, that's one of the issues around LaSalle works. We about 20 to 25% of our, each class enters LaSalle works. A bunch of them drop out after the first year, not out of LaSalle, but out of the program after the first year because they say, you know, I love it here on campus. I want to come back. I want to stay on campus. And they agree to pay the higher price to come back. Um, so we're perceived as being a traditional co-education, you know, secular residential college university, right? We're, we're perceived as that. That works. That makes it hard for us to to convince people, hey, we got to look at things a different way. We got to. We're, we're going to have to, we have to compete with these mega universities, you know, we, um, and, and there's an opportunity for it because it's the, the reason the university of Phoenix isn't what it used to be, isn't just because, um, of the quality uh, the, a lot of places they had good quality. The, the issue, they just became too big. And like anything huge, the, the quality of the services begins to erode or at least become highly inconsistent. If we got our act together, we could take advantage of that. Because our quality is very high, and we give individual institution to every student attention to every student, including our online students. And if you talk to our to our uh, graduate students who, gra- who when they graduate, they'll tell you that you know that oh my god, this is some of them have experienced Southern New Hampshire. They say this is so much better, and and it's really because they get the individual attention. They you know it's the quality is higher, and so I I think we we can take some of those students back. If we um, if we could figure out how, um, <coughs> so that was uh, the mega university yeah. uh, question. What was the second part of the question? Just wondering about things like micro credentials, yes, right. um, small, smaller, shorter qual- qualifications. So that's another th- another one of these things. Is easier said than done. Uh, we have some of it. Uh, we have more certificates. Uh, we have, uh, you know, some badges that you can, um, they, we're trying to make some of them stackable, but, um, they're, they're not really obviously stackable yet. They're, they are stackable, but not obvious. Um, there are some ways you fall into it accidentally. For instance, we have a, a deal with the ministry of education in, um, Antigua, where uh, where we're teaching a set of four courses to every teacher in Antigua, every public school teacher in Antigua, and they, the Ministry of Education pays us for that. Well, and they get a certificate. 
they can then they could then continue into the master's degree and 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 um and have a head start you know have have a four course head start and a, a few of them have so there's a place where they you know it kind of sort of ad hoc became sackable um credentials we're into credentials in our most recent plan it says we will develop a credential in every program that's tied to industry and sponsored by industry so for instance i'm currently working with the biotech industry on a credential that they would sponsor that our students could earn that would say when they graduate they're ready to step right into a particular job in the biotech industry and um and that takes some work there are several a number of areas where we already have it um, some are built in like teacher education. It already exists, right? Athletic training. It already exists, but, um, but, and we have a couple of other areas where we already have it, but we're now, we are now pledged ourselves to develop it in every single major where there's a credential. And the, uh, I, my hope is that that credential will appear on their transcript and they can put it on their resume. Um, we have um, we have some badges, so you you can get a badge in writing proficiency. You know that will say, you know, employers care about can you can you write a business letter, a, a, a proposal, a presentation. Well, we have a badge that set that says the faculty have determined, yeah, you're proficient, not just okay, you're proficient at that. Um, we we're in the process of implementing one uh, to say you have proven you as a student have proven your ability to be collaborative. Now we do a, a lot of work by teams, but and uh, and collaboration and teamwork is very desired in in the world of work today. So if we can if we can um, make the claim that our that a particular student has proven their their ability to do that, we think that'll help them when they go out in the and build their careers. So um, now that one's not stackable. That's that's something they. They should be getting anyway. It really, every LaSalle student should be able to earn one of those because of the way we teach. Um, but they have to go through a process, you know. To they have to go through a process. They have to take the initiative to go through the process and get certified. Um, and uh, so, yes, credentials. We're committed to really making that a more serious part of our of of what you go through as an undergrad. Well, we, we have it at a graduate level too. Um, and, uh, as a way to fit with our career readiness kind of focus. Great. So I just wanted to wind up with a few questions generally about leadership. You had a really unconventional path to being a, a, a college president, even though you'd been aspiring to it since you were one in, in that Antioch house. Um, what, what of those prior experiences do you think has been most helpful for you in being successful in the role over this last 15 years? You mean the experience of from before I was a college president? Yes. So, um, well, there's a lot, right? And uh, for instance, I, there were things, you know, I, when I started, I went to the Harvard seminar for new presidents. I made 46 friends and, and we followed each other. And, and even at the seminar, I saw a whole lot of the areas where, I I knew a lot of what was going on. I I knew what I knew as much or more than what the teacher was teaching, and a lot of the others didn't. Most of the others didn't, and uh, because I ran companies for twenty five years. For instance, what do you do when you have a sexual harassment case? You've been a president long enough; you know what to do. But most new presidents don't know. I knew exactly what to do. We had in my first year, we had a data breach. You know, 
I knew exactly what to do and how, you know, what the, what the state requires, who to call, what to do, how that you had to op- move fast. You had to notify people. You had to be out there open and transparent about it. And therefore it ended up costing us $34,000. There was another institution had the break at the same time that did not do it right. It cost them $16 million. That was a bigger institution, but they didn't take the right steps. You know, um, yeah, so some of this sounds like blocking and tackling, and it is. I told you about I had a, I I knew about how to diversify a workforce, right? I had a technique that had that I had used in the corporate world. I had won awards for it, um, and so I instituted it when I came here. And what it is is when we whenever we are hiring for a position, we are required to have a diverse candidate in the finalist pool before we can make an offer. Then you make an offer to whoever the best person is. You know, so you're, it's not reverse discrimination because you're not going out and saying you have to hire a minority for this position. No, you have to have a qualified minority. And then what happens is actuarially a certain amount of the time, they will be the best fit, right? Or sometimes you won't get the first one and the second one, you'll take the second one and, uh, cause you'll have good, good candidates and, you know, they're all qualified by definition and that slows things down. At first people had problems with that. They got some pushback. I don't get any pushback anymore because people have learned yeah, this really works. <laughs> and okay. here, here in Pittsburgh, we call it the Rooney Rule because you know that's what the NFL adopted to when they realized that you know they had a predominantly minority workforce but almost no leadership, and so you know been, Rooney. Yeah, yeah, they've been a little inconsistent in in the application. Uh, yeah, well, monitoring or enforcing that rule. Yeah. Yes, but in my case, you know, I had to enforce it for a long time. You know, so I. Uh, they had when before they could fill a job, they had to come to me, right? And, and they had to certify that they had, you know. Um, sometimes they would say, you know, well, we can't tell, <laughs> and I and I said, too bad, you, you got to find out. Um, and um, so, um, and it turns out you can. I mean, sometimes you get well, well, there are hardly any, you know, minorities in in the development world. You can't, you just can't find a, a high level leader. You know, when you're looking for a new vice president for for university advancement, they said, no, there, there just aren't any people. And this is this is from a search firm, right? I said, well, you're not going to get paid. I told you this up front. You're not going to get paid. You know, when they presented the first set of candidates, there was not a minority. I said, yeah, forget, it. hold, hold, hold this. We went back out, and sure enough, they found somebody. That was highly qualified. It's really good. Now we, and then became a finalist. We did not choose that person. That search firm placed him at the university at, at Berkeley right after that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you so know, they thanked you. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they, and now that search firm always has minority candidates in every pool. So it's not, so that they, they picked up on that and they, and now it's become a, a selling point for their service. When you look back um, on these 15 years, what would you say was the most challenging sort of issue that you faced and how, how did you address it? Well, well, COVID, I mean, I mean, uh, including the most challenging is to, is to keep your own spirits up, right? Because you got to be the leader. You got to keep people on a positive, you know, looking at a positive viewpoint and, and you, and through COVID, because it lasted much longer than any of us expected, that was hard to keep that going. You know, uh, it was amazing how our communities pulled together in the same direction. You know, I went, I went over a year without a single complaint about anything. 
unbelievable, not from a student or faculty member. And I always said, you know, when I get my first complaint about parking or food, I'll know we're back, right? Sure enough, in the last month, it's happened, both of those. <laughs> so I, and so people said, oh, we got these complaints. I said, what are you complaining about? <laughs> that means we're back. This is good. <laughs> now that you know, we can have trivial complaints is a good thing. So, um, no, but seriously, um, you know, making decisions when you don't know whether you're making the right or wrong thing, where you have very little information to go on, where you feel like you're guessing, uh, where you have to, you know, adjust and undo decisions you make. Um, that's, that's foreign. You know, we don't, that was unusual before COVID and then it became standard. Um, and, uh, but we did a good job of keeping our spirits, keeping it positive. We, we, we did a strategic plan in the middle of it because we, we got to look forward. We got, so, but then this, then the Delta variant came and that to personally, that was tough because I told people just get us all. We, we got to all be vaccinated and we'll be good to go. We'll have our social lives back. And then August, the Delta variant data comes out and I have to pull back and I have to say, well, I know I said that, but I also said we have to be flexible. Things can happen, but it, it was discouraging yeah. uh, to me. I mean, me to me and now yeah, to, to everybody. No so question. Do you, do you, do you share your feelings with people and say, look, yeah. I'm discouraged too. I, you know, I'm frustrated, discouraged, or do you, or do you keep that, you know, positive attitude going? And, and, um, or in my case, I tried to do both, frankly, I th- it would be disingenuous. I thought to, 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 you know, hide my own feelings in that case. And, uh, cause, it, um, and it got in the way, you know, I was looking forward to getting my job back and here there's still today, I'm making decisions all the time about that are because of the directly or indirectly because of, of COVID that, um, that take up time. So, uh, that get in the way of my doing my regular job or God forbid, I want to start a new initiative and we have a great idea for a new initiative. But when we went to the community to discuss it, we got a lot of pushback and some of it was legit. Well, I mean, it was all legit, but, but some of it was, I think I disagree with, but the one I can't, I can't, I can't fight back against is, Hey, look, we have all we have all this stuff loaded on us already. We just can't take on a new initiative right now. We happen to be in our self study year for our ten year accreditation. We have the COVID stuff. We have the new strategic plan we're implementing. How are you going to put another initiative on top of that? We just we ju- you just can't do it. We're all we're all fatigued. We're worn out by COVID. What do you say? You know, uh, normally my my community would be be all over it. I mean, the I they even like the idea. You know, they, they, they want to do the, but this, and, um, you know, as college presidents, what's our job, our job is to stir the pot is to keep things evolving. You know, we got to keep our organizations changing, even though change is difficult for people. And we always have to measure that. We always have to be careful not to overload people and burn them out, but that's more true right now. And that's frustrating. Yeah, it's that exhaustion factor of people thinking we were through and then it, it's going on for another year. And I think you've already touched on it a bit there. But my final question was to, you know, now, now that you've you've had the experience, done this for, for, for 15 years, what, what advice do you give to folks who are thinking about being college presidents, university presidents in terms of, of thinking about the role or, or, or things that they, they need to do to be successful? Okay, in answering that question, I'm going to assume that that the pandemic doesn't last forever in its right. current form, yeah. right? This that is it, not a pandemic question, right? That, that so let's assume we've at least gotten it down to endemic stage, like the flu. Um, 
And uh, I would do it by telling a, a story about having discussions with people like you. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, we talk about like among each other. And when we, frankly, when we get together, we, we talk about our problems and our challenges and our frustrations. And, you know, a lot of times they're saying, Oh, my board is this, or my faculty is that, you know, and then we, you know, we share these and commiserate with each other. But then the conversation ends with, but it's the best job I ever had. I had great jobs all along. I ran a New York TV station. You can't imagine how exciting and daily and how that's different every day. It's a great job. Pays a lot of money. Um, I got to start companies and, you know, build them up into something significant, uh, you know, going from 400 to 2000 employees. I mean, um, I had, I've been very fortunate. I have great jobs. This is the best one. And the reason it's the best one is because of the rewards are daily because the reward is, being able to see those students grow and develop and change in front of your eyes every day uh, and know that you're taking them from late adolescence to early adulthood and, and, and getting them to a place where they can go out and enter the economic mainstream and build their own families and put a roof over their head and provide educational opportunities for the next generation. So it's like earning a living and giving back at the same time. It's the best job I ever had. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. Michael, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's great to speak with you and wish you all the best in uh, getting to this endemic stage and, and, and being able to move forward with your new initiatives. Well, it's been fun. Thanks a lot, David.